Well, uh, if you haven't done it already, turn in your Bibles to, to Mark 8. Uh, you might be wondering why we're in Mark instead of uh, Matthew, our norma- normal sermon series. And uh, it's because um, for the first time in my time as a pastor, I, uh, like maybe middle of yesterday, just felt like I uh, couldn't preach the sermon that I wrote this week. Uh, and so I, uh, it's been kind of a long 24 hours, I suppose, uh, because I just felt like, uh, yeah, it just felt like it, it, if I were to come up and, and preach what I had, had written, it just wasn't what uh, God would have me do. And, and this, this chapter, Mark 8, has just been so, um, I would say heavy on my heart, but it's just been such a joy to, to soak in. It's been like a hot tub for me. Maybe that's a better, better metaphor or something. And, and I, I just had this sense uh, this weekend that I just really wanted us to um, see Jesus in, uh, in his comfort, in the comfort that he can, that he can offer us. Uh, as we're reading uh, the Gospel of Mark together and we're preaching through the Gospel of Matthew and just really trying to behold Jesus as he is and, and consider following him together, uh, I, I, my prayer is to, be, um, to point us all to the comfort that we can have in Jesus. And I feel very much like uh, out of place in this realm. Like I, I'm really drawn to Jesus the revolutionary, like the Jesus the like more everything all the time kind of, uh, you know, by the field. Uh, kind of thing, and I was thinking about thinking of some kind of like analogy, and I feel like I'm kind of like a cross between like a rhinoceros and a squirrel, you know, where it's like I'm about as cuddly as a rhino- rhinoceros, except with Johnny, and then I'm like as like, you know, energetic as a squirrel or something like that. So I just realized I feel deep inadequacy as I bring uh, this word to you this morning to actually offer us comfort uh, in Jesus Christ. I stand here pretty uh, nervous and insecure. I normally come up here pretty like pumped and jazzed after like studying stuff for a whole week, and um, so my, my heart, my heart's desire is to be faithful and uh, to offer us comfort in our King. So let me pray, and then we'll uh, we'll dive in. Oh Father, how we need you so badly! How uh, clear it is that if you don't come and fill us with your Spirit, uh, that this whole exercise uh, done in the flesh is, is nothing, is, is pointless. And so would you come? Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you, you would comfort us, uh, that um, you, would, you would show us Jesus as he is, both in the call and the comfort of his gospel. I pray, Father, that you would uh, just protect the church from me and anything that I would say that's unhelpful or unclear and just Holy Spirit would you would let us see Jesus as he is. Amen. Well if you've been uh, reading Mark with us uh, as we go through it this month uh, and you know by the way we have a kind of a complicated reading schedule next tomorrow the reading is two chapters if you remember that we read chapters 15 and 16 and then we start over on Tuesday in chapter one. Uh, But I sent a a video out that kind of does a summary of Mark's gospel, kind of a big picture overview of what's going on in Mark's gospel. And Mark's entire uh, biography of Jesus here is all centered around this one question, like, who is Jesus? Who do you say, say he is? Uh, and Mark is not, is, is not one uh, to leave us in suspense because he says right at the beginning, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, and so most of the reading of Mark is really seeing Jesus interact with people and seeing them grapple with who Jesus is. And, and Mark wants us to grapple with him as well. And this is a really big question, and I think uh, 
it's difficult for us to really see how big of a question it is because, you know, the kind of culture we grow in is that if you believe something or you know something, then, you know, you could, like, write it down on a test. You know, I think for most of us, praise God, like, if we were to, like, have a test about some, like, basic, like, Christology, basic, like, who Jesus is, we could, we could say, like, yeah, he's the Messiah or he's Jesus. Um, but I think what the, maybe more clearly what Mark is putting before us or what Jesus is putting before us when he asks us, who do you say that I am, is in some sense he's saying, like, based on how you live, who do you say that I am? Like, based on your, your life and your choices and your money and your sexuality and your, and your time and your relationships and your relationship with the poor and your marriage, and, you know, like, based on this, like, who do you say that I am? And... I just am really grappling uh, with, with Jesus myself. Like, it's just been a really fun, I don't know, year, I feel like, since I've, like, really started dialing in uh, with Jesus. But I also feel a little disoriented um, just because Jesus and, and is just so compelling and beautiful to me. Like, I think the, you know, the analogy of, like, him being a lion, which is in the Bible, is not, like, C.S. Lewis didn't invent that. Like, you know, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Um, and uh, the power of the Holy Spirit that he that he promised us, uh, you know, he said the same, uh, the scripture says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, and that we'll do greater things than he did. A, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, and, and I'm just like, my personality is just drawn to the, like, buy the field, like, with joy, sell everything you have and buy the field, like, that's what the kingdom of God is like. And I'm disoriented because I, I also sense, along with, I think, a lot of us, this <coughs> sense of uh, a fear of just kind of being overwhelmed by life, like we don't necessarily feel like we have the power to like get through our days well, or even kick habits that we don't like, let alone, you know, have the power that raised Jesus from the dead at, at work in us. And, uh, and so as we, as we look to Jesus today, I, I want us to kind of consider uh, the, the, an overview of Mark chapter 8 here that we're going to go through and just kind of consider um, to some degree, the, the system of our life, like to, based on our lives, like what, who would we say Jesus is? And, and, it, and, it, and if we're not, if, we're, if you're like me, if you're in that place where you feel kind of afraid or disoriented and just like Jesus feels uh, scary and demanding, uh, then uh, I just pray that we'd see him, see him more clearly today uh, as, he, as he goes about his ministry. So starting in uh, the beginning of, of chapter 8 here, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000, or I'm sorry, the 4,000, uh, which is a kind of on purpose because this is deja vu. If you've been reading along with us, Jesus already fed 5,000 people. And uh, for me, reading the Gospels and just kind of growing up in the church, this is, this is always kind of confused me. Like, why is he repeating himself? Like, why is it not as impressive, right? It's only 4,000 instead of 5,000. Like, shouldn't you start with 4,000 and then kind of, like, you know, work up or something? Like, did he run out of power? He could only get 4,000 fed or something like that. Uh, but I think there's a, a lot for us in this. Um, and Jesus uh, feeds uh, the 4,000. We uh, know in context uh, from chapter 7 is that Jesus is in Gentile land. He's, uh, he's in a place where the, there, there were no Jews. It was, it was a Gentile community. And so it's a, kind of like a Gentile version of the same miracle that he did. Uh, the first time feeding the 5,000, that was with uh, Israelites. That was with Jewish people. And here we have him doing the same, the same miracle. 
And I want us to see in Jesus uh, what, what inspires this miracle in Jesus. Look at, look at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days, and I have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come, have come a long distance. Now, a couple of things we see here that I want us to just kind of dial into. One, we see the compassion of Jesus. I, I just I don't know I don't know what your experience is, but when I read Jesus, like I always go for the like the rebuke. I always go for like the poke in the eye, and I just know, and but so many times the Scripture explicitly shows us like what he was feeling towards people. And so we see him having compassion on these people. And these are people who are, are at this point would fall into the category of the crowds, like not people who necessarily have said like, yeah, I'm on your team, Jesus, like I'm bought in. They're just kind of captivated. The other crazy thing is that they've been with him three days and have nothing to eat. And in our food culture, like that's just kind of unheard of. Like if you got hungry, you would leave. But something was going on here where they were like skipping meals. They were in a remote place. Jesus was uh, far away. Uh, from from civilization and there was no place to get food and so they were like going without meals because they wanted to hear Jesus and Jesus had compassion for their physical needs. We're going to kind of walk through uh, walk through the, these kind of three stories here three or four stories here and then I kind of have a point at the end so some of this might just be kind of like you know uh, Bible teaching and we'll tie it all together Lord willing. But what's going on with the numbers uh, because uh, the other thing I've always noticed is like why does he have seven loaves? Like he feeds less people with more bread at the beginning and then there's less bread left over and just like all, all, all these things. But there's actually a lot going on uh, with, with these numbers. Uh, the, the Gentile land uh, was, seven was a big number for Gentiles, for non-Jewish people. Uh, if you have read any of the Old Testament, you might you know, come across those lists of like the seven Gentile nations that were in the promised land. Uh, it's the, all the, like the ites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Prezerites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, like there's like seven nations that were part of the land uh, that God promised Israel, and so they're there. Um, and Jesus having seven baskets of bread left over kind of shows that Matthew is showing, or Mark is showing us that Jesus is not just the savior of Israel, but also the savior of the whole world. He came for all of, all of mankind. And this, this correlates with how many baskets of bread he had left over after he fed the 5,000. Do you remember how many? Twelve. Twelve, yeah. And how, how many tribes of Israel there are there? There are 12 tribes of Israel. And so we, we see Jesus working the numbers. Like it's not an accident with how much bread that he has left over. So Mark is showing us that he is, he is the Messiah, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Um, and then he... Uh, Gets, gets into his boat, look at verse 10, uh, Matthew 8, verse 10. He got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha, uh, which was back uh, into Israel, uh, Jewish land, into Israel where Jewish people would have lived. Uh, so he, he leaves the, the pagan land, the, the Gentile land, and now we get to kind of the next encounter that we have. He's tested by the Pharisees. Let me just read verses 11 through 13 here. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Actually, let me stop there. So when you look at some of the original language here, the, the, the posture of the Pharisees is abundantly clear. Like, this is not just, like, a genial, peaceful, like, 
let me just kind of come and learn from you, Jesus. Uh, but the, the Greek word for came, it has one of like military connotations. It's like what you would say if like an army came to like attack or face, uh, face Jesus. And then it says they begin to test him and they ask for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Now, we said it, said it before, as we dial into Jesus, it's by no means we're jumping ship on the Old Testament or it's irrelevant because Jesus himself here in this passage is just full of signposts uh, to the Old Testament, specifically to Exodus, uh, because the, the ideas of uh, being tested, of testing Jesus, that was exactly back to the story uh, in Exodus where it talked about God's people were testing God. They're like wanting food, and then they, then they got bread, and then they wanted quail, and then like, can God really give us water? They're constantly testing, testing God. And the, the sign from heaven is really kind of mind-blowing because it also points back to Exodus, you know, where like you're miraculously getting bread every morning, people of God, but now you want some meat, and so now you're demanding God send you quail, and Jesus himself, at, at this point, has already done lots of miracles. And he just got done feeding 4,000 people from just like a grocery bag full of food. So what is going on here? Well, the, the Pharisees are coming in unbelief. Mark is showing us, showing us what, what we do, what some of the qualities of unbelief are. So the Pharisees are demanding evidence. They're questioning Jesus, demanding a sign in their own terms. They're treating Jesus like he is uh, a on-demand Superman that will kind of dance when they want him to dance. They were looking for a Messiah according to their own making. If you're really the Messiah, then show me this. Do this. The Messiah that I want will do this. So are you going to do it and prove yourself to me? And this is showing us hardened unbelief. And I'm so glad none of us ever do this ever. Uh, where we come to Jesus demanding him dance for us to give us a specific thing that we want. And there's an important distinction to make between doubt and unbelief. The, the posture of God and Jesus we see uh, on earth towards doubt is unbelievably tender and generous and patient. But unbelief is, is, a, is a hardened place. And this, I would say, would be different than uh, what we read in our time of confession, that prayer that the man prays in the next chapter. I believe, help my unbelief. Like, that's, not, that's, a, soft, that's a soft unbelief where you acknowledge it, you're repenting of it, and you're, and you're claiming, you're claiming the, the faith that you believe and asking for, for help to believe. But this hardened unbelief uh, comes, uh, comes to Jesus. And what does he do? Look at verse 12. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? That language of generation points us is like a huge signpost straight back to the story of Exodus. I tell you the truth, no sign will be given it. And then he left them. He got in the boat and went to the other side of the lake. Like Jesus is not messing around with this posture of 
unbelief. People who come and try to force Jesus into their terms to get and to do what they want or what they expect a Messiah to do and be get left uh, at the shore looking silly. So now he's back in the boat. Look at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Isn't that crazy? If you ever you know, want to feel good about yourself, just like read what the disciples did. They had seven baskets of miracle bread left over. And they get into the boat and they're like, they didn't have any except for one, except for one loaf. Again, I'm glad we never do things as dumb as that. Jesus uses it as a teaching point. Look what he says in, in verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Here we see Jesus just doing discipleship, right? Like his disciples are rolling with him. They see him do this standoff, this face-off with the Pharisees. And they're like, okay, we're back in the boat. We're going there. And now Jesus is teaching them about what just happened. It's kind of like doing life with Jesus, seeing what he does, and then receiving teaching from him. And praise God, we have the word, and we can kind of join the disciples' perspective there. So he's teaching, uh, watch out for the, Pharise- the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And a, probably a better translation there would be leaven, uh, not necessarily specifically yeast, because I guess I'm not a huge into bread or anything, but I guess that the practices at this time, they would take a piece of dough and they'd put it aside until it would start to ferment, and then they could put that dough on some new dough and it would be a rising agent. But you had to be careful with it, obviously, because if it's fermenting, you know, it goes like past the, the threshold and then it could like make all your new dough rotten. So that's what's going on here with, with Jesus' metaphor here. And he's describing the danger of unbelief like that. Like a little bit, like a little piece can kind of get in to your life and to your heart, to your soul, and kind of turn the whole thing rotten. And we see this because he says the Pharisees, the yeast of Pharisees, and that of Herod. Which is a little bit out of the blue, but it, because they're about as opposite as you could be. Herod was a king who had completely sold out to the Roman Empire. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist because he had a, his stepdaughter do like a strip tease for him. Like he's about as like crazy and sinful and just like pursuing pleasure and power and you know whatever at, at whatever cost on on the one side. And then obviously the Pharisees uh, are were the upstanding religious people of their time. But what they both have in common, the root there, is this unbelief, this hardened unbelief of refusing Jesus. And you see Herod kind of have some like curiosity about Jesus in the sense that he's like, I'll watch your TED talk or something like that. Uh, but clearly, like, don't touch my lifestyle. Like, you know, I, I like what I like, how I'm living. And the, the danger of unbelief is that just a little bit can spoil the whole thing. And I think the danger of unbelief uh, f- for a lot of us is that, is that we, might, we, we might pick one type of unbelief, either the Pharisees' unbelief or Herod's unbelief, and like avoid that uh, and, and miss the risk that we are to the other side. So, so maybe some of us you know, see the Pharisees, seeing them you know, be all about rules, seeing them all about like doing stuff and workspace righteousness and uh, all that kind of thing, and we're like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be a legalist. I'm not going to I'm not going to try too hard because I, you know, it's not about rules. Like we can't really make any kind of like boundaries because the Pharisees made boundaries around the boundaries, and you know, and so we just stay far, far away from that kind of that kind of 
uh, error of unbelief, which is that not believing that Jesus is our Savior, that we're depraved and we need a Savior, and so we're going to try to manage it with our stuff. And, uh, and I feel like that kind of had its heyday in the last century or whatever, and then I don't know what your church experience has been like, but we're like, you know, it's not about rules, it's about a relationship and stuff. And I think the error for a lot of us could be that we've been fall to the Herod side, uh, where it's like we will watch anything we want because we're saved by grace, and it's not a, you know, it's not a matter of, you know, what, what I do. It's what, what Jesus did, which is a doctrinally true statement, but then we look at all of the, the call of Jesus to obey him, that if we love him, we'll, we will obey him. All this, though, is missed on the disciples. Look what they say in verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Again, if you want to feel good about yourself, read the disciples. Like, Jesus just explained to them what happened with the Pharisees, and they're still worried about their one loaf of bread and that they didn't bring the other bread. They're worried about food, these like practical things, and Jesus is like, no, I'm trying to actually like teach you about the greater reality here. Look what Jesus says. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? So the next few verses we're going to get into, this is Jesus' rebuke. And we see Jesus with the Pharisees sighing deeply. And then we see Jesus asking a bunch of questions, and it seems like he's pretty exasperated, like he's pretty frustrated. Like, if I'm guessing what Jesus is feeling, it seems like he's weary and lonely. These people that he's pouring his life into who just saw him feed 4,000 people are still, like, ignoring him because they're worrying about food. Even after they've seen these miracles, they're still living like they're on their own, like they, it's up to them and they have to manage everything. And so this is a rebuke, and this is where I feel like just my desire to offer us comfort in Jesus and, you know, the execution is, 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 very, is very weak uh, because Jesus very much has a call and a comfort. Like there is, Jesus came in grace and truth. And I think to see the comfort, we, we have to be willing to feel a little bit of the sting of Jesus. Because his rebuke is not a, a rant. It's not a tirade. It's not a lecture. What is it? What, is, what does Mark include in his rebuke? Questions. It's all questions. Depending on how you cut it up, it's like seven, seven to nine questions that Jesus is, is just putting before his disciples, and it's actually pretty pretty gentle. He's trying to draw them out. Look what he says in verse 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So as we see Jesus, we see him calling people to belief, like calling to people to believe in him. Like he's the, the, the main thing that it seems like he is dialing in and all the teaching, all the miracles is he's calling his disciples like, who do you say that I am? Do you believe in me? Like, do you like set your life 
all around this reality kind of belief. And I just want to read this passage. Uh, This is from John 6, because I think this shows some of the the importance that Jesus uh, is getting at, uh, how Jesus understands belief and how important it is. Let me just read this to you. You can turn there if you'd like. John 6, uh, verse 28 and 29. Many a sermon in this passage, but I'm just trying to get to this one perspective of Jesus. They asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. We see Jesus putting belief at a really high place. Like, this is the work of God. If you want to do, do what God desires, you believe in me. Like, believing in me is work, and it's the work that God desires. Mark ends this chunk by Jesus asking the question, do you still not understand? And in classic form, uh, both for Jesus and I think just the way the Gospels, they, they don't give us the answer, they tell us a story which is what we have next with the healing of the blind man. So they come to Bethsaida, which is a, a Jewish place, and they took, uh, he took a blind man, look at verse 23, he took a blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Now my hope as we are wrestling with this idea of who is Jesus and do we believe in him is that we could kind of use our imaginations and enter in to this this story. Uh, I don't know what it does for you, but the past like week or two, like I cannot like get past this picture of in 23, Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Like the tenderness of Jesus, right? We just had him like drop the mic and kind of walk away from the Pharisees. We just had him kind of do this like seven to nine question rebuke of his disciples. And then this poor blind man comes to him and Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him away out of the village. It was just like unbelievably tender to me and his, his desire, desire to heal. Now, a couple of things about this specific story is one, uh, spitting, saliva, was considered a, a medicine, like a medicinal, had medicinal qualities back in the day. You know, they didn't have big pharmaceuticals uh, companies or anything like that. So it's not as weird as it is to us that he would, would spit on his eyes. Uh, it's still weird, though, like just to imagine like Jesus and just like how human this is. Like just like imagine... You know, Jesus just like grabbing his hands and, and like or grabbing the sides of his face and, and, spitting, and spitting on his eyes. And then he was healed not all at once. So he, at first, he just saw people and they looked like trees walking around. And so how does Jesus respond to this kind of incomplete miracle, to this like half healing? Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So we see Jesus taking the hand of a blind man. We see him with his body, like with his spit, entering into his brokenness to heal him. 
We see him taking the time to take this guy alone. And then when it doesn't, when it doesn't happen exactly the way that it's supposed to, or when the guy doesn't see clearly, Jesus moves towards him and puts his hand on him. So we see Jesus being here. We see him being patient. We see him being tender. We see him being not about hype, like he took this man away from the crowds outside the village to heal him. Like he's not, you know, doing this like kazam to, to you know, give a sign, a sign from heaven like the Pharisees were wanting. He like actually cares about this man. Like he actually wants to be with him. He wants to touch him. He wants to heal him. But the story is not just about healing a blind man. It's also a literary device. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. Like it, it happened. It's true. But Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using this story to illustrate what's happening, what's going on. Because Mark's whole gospel framed around the question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? This is the turning point. This, this, the, right here at the end of chapter 8, the, the whole beginning, uh, the whole first half is uh, Jesus kind of teaching and doing miracles and stuff. And then this whole second half is people deciding. People deciding whether they're on whether they're just going to kind of be like, you know, TED Talk watchers, or they're going to be actively against him and ultimately kill him. And, and what I want us to see is that seeing is like the main thing that Mark is doing here. Because right before this story, Jesus says, do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you, do you not see or understand? And then in these five verses here, eyes or sight or blindness is mentioned nine times. Like it's it's over the top redundant. Like we'll just look at twenty five. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Like that's four in just like one verse. So this is, Mark is using this story to show us how people see to sh- to show us what's happening with the disciples. Because in many ways, like, they did believe. Like, they left stuff, and they, they left their families and their jobs to, to follow Jesus. But then clearly there's a, a breakdown. Clearly they're still, like, stressing about bread. Clearly, like, they haven't, the, they haven't had the messianess of Jesus be internalized. And so all this leads up to the big question. Look at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to villages, onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Now, Mark is, is drawing almost uh, as, much as, as much as we can tell, like a, almost an exact parallel. Just like he took the blind man by the hand and took him out of the village alone, uh, which would have been, think about being blind in that day and age. Like, you would have had maybe a little bit of a feel for your village, but here this, like, new teacher is taking you away from your friends and your village and, like, what you know. He's taking him out of his comfort zone. In the same way, Jesus, he's going he's gonna to pop the question. He's going to pop the question to his disciples. He takes them uh, out of their comfort zone, out of uh, Jewish society to Caesarea Philippi which is one of the most like crazy places to be having this conversation because Caesarea Philippi was essentially a strip mall for all the different kinds of gods there. Like there was a lot of paganism, it was not a Jewish land, and so it was like just temple after temple after temple after temple. It was like carved into the side of a of a mountain of a hill. And it was called Caesarea Philippi. That was a relatively new name for this city because Herod had just built a brand new temple uh, to kind of kiss up to Caesar. And it was a temple to Caesar. Uh, who actually called himself the son of God uh, at, at this time, viewed himself as divine, which is why there was, there was 
temples, and he renamed it Caesarea or Caesarea uh, Philippi. Philippi was Herod's son. So Jesus takes them out of the comfort zone of Israel to the strip mall to all these other gods uh, that probably would have been pretty impressive. Like strip mall might not be a fair term because these people didn't mess around with building, building their temples. And he asked them two questions. Look at verse 27, at the last part. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? In 28, they, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. So the first question he asks is like, a gill lay of the land. Like, who do people, who do other people say that I am? And people have been grappling with who Jesus is ever since. In their day, you see them sharing what the culture was thinking Jesus was. They, they were looking for things, categories in their culture that Jesus would fit into. Like, may, maybe he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. That guy was pretty powerful. Like, maybe he's, maybe he's back. Others say he's Elijah. Still, others say one of the prophets. We haven't had a prophet in 400 years. Like, maybe this is God breaking, breaking the silence. And this question, I think, is helpful for us as well. Who do people say that Jesus is in our day? What cultural categories do people try to fit Jesus into in our day and age? Because none of us are none of us are free from our cultural worldview. The thing about worldview is like you look through it. Like you don't look at it, you look through it. And so it's it, it kind of tints everything that we see. In our day, I think Jesus can be all over the map. Like he gets pin, pinholed into all kinds of different categories. Everything from like the truest American that ever lived, who did everything right and, you know, pretty much inspired the Constitution to, like, a communist or, you know, the first feminist or, you know, all kinds, all over the map. We can, like, put, put Jesus into all these, all these different categories that, that meet our needs. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing, is they're trying to drag Jesus into their world and operate on their terms. And then he gets to the, the real question, verse 29, that he's asking all of us, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Now Peter's confession here is a big deal. You'll notice it's kind of downplayed in Mark compared to Matthew's account. Uh, but Christ is really just a Greek word for uh, Messiah. It's like a Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, Mashiach, uh, or a, a king, or anointed one. And this was, a, this was a big deal back then because, A, it was a, it was a kingdom, like it was a place where there were actual, actually kings. But back then, king was more of a, a political reality. Because you ever wonder why Jesus says, uh, don't, don't tell anybody about him, don't tell anybody uh, about me? Because if, if you claim to be a king and there's like already like a, a real king or whatever, that, that's, a, that's a political statement. It's like going to the White House and saying, like, I'm the president now or something like that. Not quite. Uh, but when you, so when you start to claim that you're king, you either need to start the revolution and overthrow the powers that be, or you're going to get killed, like, or, or, or you die. And we see uh, that here, uh, we see the, the disciples being exactly like that blind guy. Because Peter answers. He gets the right answer uh, on the test. Like, you, you are the king. You are the Messiah. And we know in Matthew, like, it's a, it's a big deal. Like, it, it's not just flesh and blood that revealed it to him. 
But we also see that right after that, uh, when Jesus goes on to actually teach, to actually show himself for who he is as the suffering servant, uh, that Peter rejects him. Look at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Do you see, like, the already not yet there? Like, Peter can see him as the Messiah, but not that Messiah. Like, you're not the Messiah that gets beaten and rejected. Like, you're the Messiah that comes in power and makes Israel great again. We see that uh, in Peter, there are still the remnants of unbelief. There are still remnants of that blindness that refused to see Jesus as he is, that he had seen the passages in the Old Testament about a conquering king, about redemption for Israel that God promises, but he'd missed the parts about a suffering servant who would be crushed for our iniquities. And what we see in Peter, in the life of Peter, is that he's not out. He's not out of the club. Like, it wasn't like a one and done. But he's like still the rock that, that, that Jesus used, the Holy Spirit used to build his church. And so the point in, in all of this is, one, I just want to see Jesus doing his thing in Scripture. Sometimes doing a bigger chunk like this can be helpful, I pray. It is. Uh, but I, I just wonder how many of us, like, we're in the boat, just stressing about bread, and Jesus is like in front of us, like teaching us and calling us and showing us himself, and we're just afraid and overwhelmed about the bread. And like if we're getting confused and intimidated by Jesus, like I wonder how much of that comes from, from like that, that leaven of unbelief, because we have our cultural categories of what Jesus is or should be. And maybe your cultural categories is that Jesus should never, never do anything that we don't like, or it should be easy to understand. Or maybe your cultural categories are that like Jesus is this like jerk uh, that we're kind of scared of, but at least he died for our sins. Or, or like I know that that's all I really want and need from Jesus. Call those vampire Christians. I just want the blood. You just want the blood. Don't really want the <clears throat> the Lord or the life. And I think the issue behind this, getting confused, being intimidated. Is who do we say that Jesus is? Who do our lives say Jesus is? <coughs> and I want us to see the comfort of Jesus asking us questions. That you're like alive, you're here, we're, part, we're together in this church, and Jesus, I, I believe through his word, is asking us questions. Why are you talking about having no bread? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? And these questions, what I, I hope we can see, are, is Jesus taking us by the hand and leading us out of the village, leading us out of our comfort zone so that we can like, be with him, so that we can be with him, so that he can heal us like with his body, like with his spit. And that there's space in the incompleteness to, to see people walking around like trees and telling him that. And then receiving his hands on us. Like the answer to unbelief, the answer to that like overwhelming kind of struggle through powerless form of life is to move towards Jesus. 
And I think in his questions, there's, there's, there's an invitation. As he takes us out of our comfort zone, uh, by the hand, with us, every step of the way, like he doesn't banish us and tell us to go figure it, figure it out. Like this is, might be a bad example, but whenever I'd ask my dad a question like about science or something, he'd be like, great question, you should probably go look it up. And which maybe that was good for parenting, you know, teach me to like research things and stuff. But like, that's, that's not what Jesus does. Like he comes to us with himself. And I think in these questions, it, it gives us some things to consider. Why are you talking about having no bread? Like, like what are the practical little things of life that we just fixate on, that we become like crazy people about and just miss Jesus standing in front of us? Like we're so preoccupied with our food or our money or our bills or our career or the house that we have or the house that we don't have or whatever that we, that, that we just get fixated on these practical things when Jesus says, your father knows what you need. And he says, do you have eyes but don't see? There's that crazy thing about like seeing is that you can you know, take in an entire room but like not see a lot of stuff. And in Matthew 6, Jesus says, uh, but if the eye is dark, then the whole body is dark. So it's a question of, like, what are we beholding? What are we looking to? What do we fill our eyes with on a, on a daily basis? What kinds of things are we, are we looking to? Is, you know, to, what, to what degree uh, are they seeing Jesus you know, versus seeing you know, TV or seeing, what are, seeing our, our boss or YouTube videos or you know, whatever it is? Like, what are we filling our eyes with? Are we, are we seeing Jesus? And the same with the ears. You have ears but don't hear. Jesus, uh, in, in, in his tenderness, is saying, like, listen to me. Like, come outside the village with me and, and listen to me. And it seems pretty clear that in many ways, like, God, God's voice is a quiet voice. And I believe listening to God, being able to hear the voice of God, uh, is, is an art, is, is, is an art form, something that requires us to be to be, to be quiet, to be able to actually hear him. Uh, you can think of it like a party. If you're like in this big, loud party and you can barely hear one another, uh, and you know, it's like God is like, hey, c- come over here. And you're like, I can't hear you. The party's really loud. And he's like, I know. Come over here. And then he says, why don't, and don't you remember? And then Jesus just kind of very patiently says, like, how much bread do we have after the first time? How much bread do we have after the second time? Don't you remember what I've done? Don't you remember what I've done for you? I think that's a word for us, is that we can look at our life, like what has Jesus done for us in our lives? Like what has he protected us from? What has he given us? What has he saved us from? But I think ultimately (laughs) we have the gift of of seeing, don't you remember what, what I've done for you on the cross? That the hand that takes us out of the village, like out of our comfort zone, was pierced for us, for our sin. That the, the, the hand that carries us out has, has a hole in it because our sin, our unbelief, our rejection of Jesus, that we, where we force him into our categories of being the way that we want, is an offense to God and Jesus took care of that so that now we can come to him in tenderness. And so three things for us to consider uh, moving forward this week. The first one is, uh, if you're willing, um, take or leave it, it would seem, based on this passage, that we should all start with the assumption that we are blind, at least a little bit. 
that we don't know it all, that there's a lot we have to learn, that we haven't figured Jesus out, that we have planks in our eyes. You know, maybe we see Jesus, you know, in the sense that we see people like walking around like t- trees, but we, can we just start with the assumption that, that, we, that we need to see clearly, that we need to be healed of our, our cultural worldviews, uh, our sin worldviews, all the wounds that we've received, our father uh, wound worldviews, all these things affect how we see Jesus, and we, and we need to see him. And so because of that, uh, one thing I think could be really helpful is uh, to read the Gospels every day. That we want to read all of Scripture, we'll always read all of Scripture, saying that can be the only thing you read, but you know, uh, right now we're going through Mark, so I invite you to join us with that, uh, reading chapters 15 and 16 tomorrow, and chapter 1 on Tuesday. Uh, but even if you're, you know, later on and you're in a different, you're reading the Old Testament or you read the Psalms, like you read different parts of the Bible at the same time. But I just encourage you, the, the way to keep Jesus, uh, to see Jesus as he is, to have eyes and actually see him, is to, is to keep him as he is before. And then sp- pay special attention to what you don't like. Special attention to things you don't like. Uh, one time I, w- I was at a cabin and I read through Mark and then I laid down on the couch and I was just like, Jesus, you were a jerk. And I was like, I just like couldn't believe how how like rude he seemed to me after just like blazing through, through Mark, and then and then it was like a, was like a, I don't know, like a smack or like wave or something. It was just like all these tender moments that I had just read completely like I just didn't see them. I had eyes, but I did not see them because of how I'm wired, because of my family history, all those things. Like I was just drawn to this particular type of Jesus that, that I saw. And so pay special attention to what you don't like. And then, the, and then the third thing, and this is pretty revolutionary to us, I think, as, um, as Baptists or conservatives or whatever, uh, is uh, to, to consider incorporating silence and solitude into your life. If you're an extrovert, silence is the hard part. Uh, and, and if you're an introvert, silence also can be the hard part. Because with our society, we, like, we can say, oh, I'm an introvert. I'm, it's easy to be solitude. But then we got, you know, podcasts and movies and, you know, music all the time like we're never actually in silence because it's in silence and solitude like when we're actually still that I think the Holy Spirit can bring stuff to the surface and and let us see some of that that bogus stuff that's keeping us from seeing Jesus as he is seeing the the bread that we're that we're so focused on and it, it happens just by where does your mind go but it's in the quiet it's in the stillness that I believe that that we can begin to see Jesus, let him take us out of our comfort zone. And I, I don't know what it's like for you, but when I'm like literally just still, even just for like 20 minutes with like no books, no anything, like all kinds of stuff comes up, all kinds of things from the past that I haven't dealt with, all kinds, it's like, it is not my comfort zone, I think, for, and it might be not for any of us to actually just be still and quiet. But Jesus says in Matthew 11 that, we come to him, all who labor and are heavy laden, and, give, and we'll get rest for our souls. That we take our, his yoke upon us and learn from him. And we find rest because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus' yoke, his way of life, is easy and his burden is light. And so if we're experiencing it differently, then that means that we, we, our answer to the question, who do you say that I am, might not be right. If we, our experience of Jesus is not an easy, easy yoke and a light burden, then maybe we're carrying one that we've made up on, on our own. And my prayer is that we would see uh, the pierced hand leading us 
uh, maybe to a scary place, maybe out of our comfort zone, but ultimately to be healed uh, by Jesus, to see him as he is. Let me pray. Father, thank you that uh, 